Welcome to Radioactive, your show that plugs you into grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones, and tonight on the show, we'll spend the hour with the Utah Foundation and its latest report and podcast on social trust. To get it all in, let's get going and pass the microphone to find out more. Hey, I'm Sean Teigen. I work with the Utah Foundation. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan public policy research group that's been around for 75 years. I'd love to talk to you about uh, social trust and and even bigger than that, uh, social capital across the state. This is the second report in the foundation's series on social capital, and you've called it the kindness of strangers, social trust in Utah. <laughs> so give us the the elevator pitch on this report. So this is one of a whole bunch of pieces of social capital. And this this thing about social trust is like, you know, how much can we trust our neighbors? How much can we trust our politicians? How much can we trust strangers uh, that that might uh, you know beat us up when we're walking down the street at night? So it's it's that sort of picture, and we we're comparing ourselves in Utah to the mountain states and then to the larger nation. All right, let's take let's break down some key findings because when I think of trust, social trust, I am also as an old business reporter incredibly aware that we're also affinity fraud capital of the United States it seems like. Back to the penny right. stock frauds right. to uh folks trusting their neighbors in the pews and then having their life savings disappear. Um so tell us some of these top line findings. Well, so we're the best at Ponzi schemes. We're just really good at Ponzi schemes and and that you know whatever you want to call them pyramid schemes um, some multi-level marketing and that is that sort of stuff. We do really well at that in, in, in Utah. But if you look at like a little bit more broadly at fraud, um, you'll see that our fraud convictions, we used to have a higher fraud conviction rate than, than the nation. Um, it's decreasing for the nation and um, in Utah. Um, and we're now below the nation. So if, in terms of those Ponzi schemes, that, that one kind of fraud, uh, we still kick everybody's butt. But if you're looking more broadly at fraud conditions, uh, we're, we're doing a little bit better over time. Um, and we are uh, we're now beating the nation uh, in terms of a, we're having a better rate. We have fewer fraud convictions. So this and and so wait, okay, this, I, I, all right. This is backwards and upside down for me, Sean. So let's yeah, yeah. let's slow it down. So we have fewer fraud convictions. Does that mean we have fewer fraud cases? We hope to, we hope that that's the case. <laughs> we hope that that you know that's the problem with with honestly with any of these data is that we're, they're based on convictions and based on so if we we feel that the, that the society is working correctly um, then we've got uh, convictions that match up with uh, with the overall uh, fraud that's happening across the state and like you know we're tracking downward across the US does that mean we're the 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 shysters are getting better lawyers i mean that's possible um but uh, but if if you can uh, kind of think that, you know, the U.S. and Utah, um, we have some pretty uh, similar data. Um, we are possibly doing a little bit better in terms of overall fraud, but also uh, we just have, uh, we, 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 it may not capture everything. We may not be catch, uh, catching and, and prosecuting every, every shyster. You talk about successful social interactions depending on trust and that it has major implications for the prosperity of our economy health of a democracy, social fabric, et cetera. Why? Get into this. Let's let's explain the obvious, perhaps. But I want to talk about this because, as we saw in our special session recently, there are folks of differing viewpoints on mask mandates, on redistricting, et cetera. And there seems to be a social trust issue at play there. Utah Foundation, every gubernatorial election year, so every every year that that we get out and we we elect a new governor, we uh, put something together called the, the uh 
um, priorities project. And this year, uh, uh, 2020, right at the beginning of the year, before the pandemic, we reached out and people were mad about politicians listening to voters. That was the, this is so weird to me. If you'd asked me two weeks before what's going to be the top list, this would have been the last thing I would have chosen. But people were so mad about politicians listening to voters. We go out, we get all this work done to get all the people to the ballots and we're going to, we're going to change the world. We're like doing democracy. And we're, and, and then the legislature says, oh, well, no, we're going to change some of these things a little bit and, and, and tweak this a bit. So, you know, that was a top issue. And even after the pandemic started, we redid this poli- uh, this priorities project and, and politicians listening to voters, it's bounced down to six after all this pandemic stuff. So we're still freaked out about the pandemic, but at the back of our mind, we're still like, you know, what's up with politicians? And then you see, you know, there's there might be some reasons why people were a little bit angry because you, you vote on something and then, you know, something at the end of the day, um, uh, that, that gets twisted around a little bit. I think that the... This ties into when we talked about uh, civic engagement. Um, if we see that like politicians aren't listening to this to us, even if we're doing this, these ballot initiatives, uh, you know, maybe we're not going to be engaged anymore. We're, we're we're burned out. It doesn't work anyway. Let's just throw our hands up. So th- there there are some issues with that. Uh, uh, we may also you know just lose our overall uh, uh, desire to kind of uh, you know look at the prosperity of the overall state. So, I mean, there are some things that are that are important around this issue. One of the things that we didn't talk about is violence. So you see, we've actually seen a little bit of an uptick in violence uh, over, over the last number of years. We're still uh, below the rate for uh, for the nation, um, but it's increased a little bit. But, you know, if people are 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 worried to go, you know, downtown and and go to the Eccles Theater and go to dinner on on a weekend night because violence uh, increases in Salt Lake City. You know that has ramifications for the economy. So all these things are 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 interrelated and they're just like little touch points for trying to understand this larger picture about social trust and then this even larger picture about uh, overall social capital. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the organization. You always have some great events coming up. Anything you want to spotlight? We also had an event, an annual uh, luncheon just recently, and we we had this absolutely fantastic speaker in Shailen Romney Garrett talk about social capital. And one of the things that she talks about with uh, in a, in addition in a recent uh, book with Robert Putnam is that our we we have have gone from this this society where we kind of work together to the society of of narcissism. We all become a bunch of narcissists, and and that has a some big ramifications for all this other social capital stuff. And she sees that, you know, I've seen this before from different areas, but she sees that that kind of that pulling apart of society hasn't been seen since uh, we had a civil war, uh, you know, uh, quite some time ago. And, and uh, it's, it's a, she's got some really great graphs and and kind of leads us through these, these curves that, that don't bode well for society. So it seems like we all have to kind of start focusing on some of this social capital and some of this trust and, and and get out of the doom scrolling and, and try to focus on some things that we can maybe do better. And and if the legislature doesn't listen to us, if politicians don't listen to us as as people across the state, we you know, hopefully we don't just become demoralized. Hopefully we keep trying and and we keep working to uh, to make sure that the government is responsive to uh, the the voice of the people in the state. Hey, let's let's share that episode of your podcast, narcissism and the unraveling of and the unraveling of society. How about it? Uh, I think that sounds great. You know, it's. 
absolutely worth uh, the, uh, worth your while. There's really some some things to be gained for that, and it's all it's not all doom and gloom uh, anyway. The, there there are some uh, some tangible things that we can be doing to to kind of bring ourselves together uh, back together as society. We've lightly edited to fit it all into the hour, and we pick up the podcast with author Shailen Romney Garrett talking about the data that comes from the upswing, how America came together a century ago, and how we can do it again. I want to start out with the motivating question of this piece of research. How did we get here? It's not a surprise to any of you that America is in the midst of a multifaceted crisis. But a lot of times I think we don't fully realize how multifaceted that crisis really is. In fact, America today has reached historic levels of political polarization, economic inequality, social isolation, and cultural self-centeredness. We are in a very difficult moment as a nation. And I think we know that, we experience that day to day, but I think sometimes it's harder to understand how that fits into a broader historical perspective of where we've been as a nation um, and where we might be headed in the future. So I want to share with you today an answer, we hope, to the question of how did we get here. So a lot of research has been done on this question. How did we get into such a mess? In fact, one of the reviewers of Bob and my book, The Upswing, wrote that uh, this is just yet another contribution to the how America got into this mess genre of literature. There have been many books written in the last, uh, uh, in the last decade attempting to answer this question. But many of them focus on one or maybe two of these different phenomena. And many of them also focus mostly on the last half century, which we know has shown declines in cooperation, declines in equality, and all these other things. So the upswing is a bit different in a couple of ways. What Bob and I were aiming to do with this book was zoom out to look at not just one of these variables, but all of them simultaneously, and also not just the last half century in America's history, but the last 125 years basically as far back as we can go to find longitudinal data sets to tell us what the trends look like in these different phenomena. So I'm going to share with you now a series of graphs that summarize what we found. In this case, we're talking about political committee. That's not a term that's generally used, but what that means is the opposite of political polarization. So the degree to which we can compromise across party lines, the degree to which we feel warmly toward one another, um, to toward others of a different party, these, these sorts of measures, the degree to which we might vote um, a split ticket, we might vote for a Republican for president or a, and a Democrat for mayor. Um, to what extent have, has that been happening in America and, and when? In the 1890s, a time in America called the Gilded Age, America was extremely polarized, very, very polarized. It was a time of tribal politics, um, very little cooperation, gridlock in the public square. That slowly began to change. And over time, over the course of actually close to 70 years, America became more and more able to compromise in the public square, less and less polarized. Until at the peak of that curve, you can see in the 50s and 60s, we were in a quite cooperative era of American politics. That era um, was characterized by what historians have called the least partisan president in American history, of course, with the exception of George Washington, who predated political parties. And that president was Dwight Eisenhower. Now, of course, Dwight Eisenhower did not create this era of good feelings, but he epitomized it, right? The ability to compromise across party lines was at its peak during mid-century America. 
And then in roughly 1960, 1965, you can see what began to happen. We began to plunge downward again into a state of deep, deep political polarization. And we know that if we were to extend that curve all the way to 2021, it would be even deeper. So that's what the trends over this long period of time look like in terms of polarization. So were we moving toward more equality in America or less and when over this period? Here the data starts in about 1913, which is when the IRS, uh, when America began uh, the federal income tax. So that's when we have really good national data about equality. And we were in a very unequal state. And in fact, we know from some data sets and from the historical record that if you go back a little further in time, we were even more economically unequal. Again, that was a period known as the Gilded Age, the era in American history of the robber barons, the Astors and the Rockefellers living on the Upper East Side of New York in their mansions and the huddled masses on the Lower East Side and equivalent places all over America living in tenements um, in squalor. But things began to change. After 1910, we got more equal. You can see here that there was a pause or a dip during what historians call the Roaring Twenties, when there was a lot of money made in the stock market and the rich got a lot richer. But then we started back on that trajectory again. Even before the New Deal, we began to move in a direction of greater equality. And you can see that during that mid-century period, we were in a, relatively speaking, much more economically equal place than we had been. Not to say that we were equal. America was by no means fully equal at that point. There were rich and there were poor, of course. But compared to our own history, it was a more equal time than we had ever seen before. In fact, measures of American equality at that time were roughly equal to um, the Scandinavian countries, who are famously egalitarian nations. But then, in about that same period, the 1960s, things began to plunge downward. We began to move in a direction of much more economic inequality. The gap between rich and poor began to grow, landing us where we are today. And I think the data here ends in 2015, but if we were to continue that to today, we know as a result of a phenomena both before and after the pandemic, it's gotten far worse. So we are now in um, a state of economic uh, inequality almost unrivaled in our history as a nation. So we've looked at politics and economics. Let's now look at society. Social cohesion. That's just another term for what Senator Lee uh, described as social capital, the way in which our communities are connected, the degree or extent to which people want to associate with one another. Do they join things? Do they attend church? This also include measures, includes measures about family formation. Are people forming families? Are families staying together, right? All of those measures are here combined. And we see that in the 1890s, in the Gilded Age, we were in a very socially isolated period, very disconnected, lonely time in American history. And then things got better. And we see that familiar pause in the 1920s, but then we resume our trajectory, moving more and more to being in a nation of neighbors, a nation of people connected to one another, associated with one another, and working together toward common aims. And then, at what should be a now familiar turning point in the 1960s, American social, the American social fabric began to unravel yet again, plunging us downward into a state of loneliness and isolation that we are in as a nation today. Now, I mentioned that Utah tends to have, by state-to-state -state comparisons, some of the highest social capital in the nation. However, you need to understand that that's happening in the context of a state when America as a whole has some of the lowest social capital in our history. 
So if you think that that picture is stark, let's look at one more dimension, cultural trends over the last 125 years. Now you might ask yourself, how do you measure culture? And uh, that's a really interesting question that has been debated in social science quite a bit. If you're interested in that, I would encourage you to get the book and read this chapter. Uh, it's one of the chapters that Bob and I are most proud of in terms of finding really hard longitudinal measures of American culture. So what we're talking about here is the extent to which Americans are either believing that we're all in this together, believing that, this, that we are cooperating and that that's what the purpose of our society is, versus a belief that this is a giant competition. It's every man for himself, and um, you know, good luck. In the Gilded Age, we see yet again that America was in a very I-focused moment. It was all about me. We weren't into sharing or working together, but that slowly began to change. And again, we see that pause in the 1920s, very interesting. And in about 1960, we reach a peak of cultural solidarity, the point at which we were most socially cohesive. Now, many cultural commentators of the day believed that we were too culturally cohesive. There was a lot of discussion at that time about conformity and the dangers of being over-connected. But to the greatest extent that we have seen in a long time, America was beginning to realize the part of our goals as a nation that have to do with working together. And then, same phenomenon, we have plunged further downward back to a culture of narcissism. These are four very stark stories, individually and on their own, right? Any one of these is very fascinating, has a lot of um, nuance and detail to it. But what we're really looking at here is correlation. We're not looking at four separate phenomena. We're looking at four deeply interrelated phenomena. I have to just emphasize here, and I know that this is a research foundation, so all of you are here um, supporting uh, data-based work, right? So let me just emphasize that how rare it is to actually find correlation. Again, recognizing that each of these four curves represents scores of underlying measures that all roughly follow the same trajectory, not just over a year, not just over a decade, but over 125 years in American history. As my co-author Bob Putnam, who is a world-famous data scientist, likes to say, this graph passes the interocular trauma test, which in other words means it hits you between the eyes that something is going on here. Something is going on here to such an extent that we're actually able statistically to combine these all into a single graph. This is a statistically validated story of American history over the last 125 years. And Bob and I call this curve the I-We-I curve. To a great extent, the 20th century in America can be described as America's I-We-I century. We started off in a very I moment, very unequal, polarized, self-focused, socially isolated moment. We steadily climbed out of it over the course of 70 years. And then in the 1960s, we plunged downward back into a moment of I. There again have, many, have been many interesting studies that have been done on, on these questions, um, but most of them focus on this downturn. In fact, Bowling Alone, the book for which my co-author is the most famous, focuses on that downturn, the last half century when we began to slide. And there are a lot of narratives out there today that say, well, you know what? What we need to do is just turn back the clock. We need to make America great again, get back to that golden age in American history when everything was good. And I want to be clear that that is not the message of our book, nor is it the message um, that I want to leave with you today. Of course, there were many ways in which that we moment in American history, the peak of that curve, was an extraordinarily imperfect we. 
And we can hopefully get to that a little bit more in detail in a moment. But furthermore, we believe that the moment that we most need to learn from today is the moment that most looked like the moment we're living through. And that turns out to be the Gilded Age. Very clearly, on hard measures, you can see that we are living through a second American Gilded Age. Often that, that the second Gilded Age term is applied to describe the economic inequality of today, but it is a much, much more, um, it is a much deeper and broader phenomenon than that. And at the time of the Gilded Age, Americans were living through breathtakingly similar challenges to what we are facing today. And there were many cultural commentators, much as we see today, decrying the end of democracy, that we've gone off the rails, tyranny, oligarchy, the American experiment has failed. But none of those doomsday prophecies turned out to be true. On the contrary, as we can see clearly from the data, America entered a multifaceted, multi-decade upswing in which we turn it around and reclaimed our nation's promise. The message of the upswing is that we have been here before in a mess equally difficult to the one that we are facing today. We pulled ourselves out of it once before and we can do it again. So what are some of the lessons from this period of the upswing when America got things moving in the right direction again? I want to just conclude today with some thoughts about that question. This is, again, a very data-based story. And so a lot of times when you have a lot of data, particularly data that's looking at trends over time, and you have trends that are all beginning to move in the same direction at roughly the same time, a logical question would be, well, which phenomenon turned first? If we can identify what, stat uh, what statisticians call the leading variable, then we might be able to sort of identify what thing we should focus on first if we wanted to recreate an upswing today. And we have a bit of a bias in American culture that economics drives everything and the rest is just details. And I think that bias comes particularly strongly out of the social, so social sciences where you know, individuals are treated a lot like just economic animals. What our data shows quite clearly is that actually economics was a lagging variable in this story. We started to move in the direction of economic equality last, not first. A lot of times the story goes that if we could just fix our economic inequality, then we would all start to feel like we're in this together, we'd all be on the same page, and things would move in the right direction. We'd be less polarized if we could just fix our economics. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying that fixing our economic inequality is not an urgent issue. It's absolutely urgent. But what the data from the last upswing tells us is that it wasn't the thing that drove the story. It may be that there's something underneath questions of economic distribution that we need to get at first. So if economics was the lagging variable, the question then becomes what was the leading variable? Now I should say that we're looking really far back in American history from a data perspective. We're also looking at scores of different separate measures. So sometimes I explain this like you're watching a flock of birds in flight and you're a thousand feet down, and they're moving in one direction, then all of a sudden they all switch and go in the other direction. There's a turning point there. It's almost impossible looking from the ground up to say which one of those birds turned first, right? And that's a little bit what we're dealing with here with all of this different data. But what we do know from pairing the data we do have with the historical record is that it was actually a moral and cultural shift that led America's last upswing. The culture of the Gilded Age was characterized by something called social Darwinism. 
Darwin, um, in, a, in an era just previous to this, had articulated the, the survival of the fittest as a description of how the natural world works. And there were many social commentators that came along and said, well, if that's how the biological world works, then that's how society should work. This is just one giant competition. Only the strong will survive, and the devil take the hindmost. That was the reigning cultural ethos of the day. And into that cultural milieu came a group of reformers called the social gospelers. This was a movement that started in evangelical Protestantism, but quickly moved into society more broadly. And these were preachers who came out and said, we have a moral problem, America, and that problem is actually that we are not living our moral values. At the time, Christianity in America was characterized by a very individualistic way of seeing salvation. I'm focused on my personal sins, my personal salvation, and everybody else, that's their own business. The social gospelers came in and said, wait a minute. We need to not just be behaving morally in a personal way. We need to be behaving in a, in morally in a societal way. And they began to reframe society's problems in moral terms. Again, that movement caught on broadly, and there began to be a fierce reckoning with America having gone morally off the rails. Now, when you have a moral awakening or moral outrage, there's a couple ways that that can manifest. One is that you start to look around in society to identify the bad apples. If we could just identify who we need to expel, we can cancel them, and then we'll all be fine. Or we can look inward. In describing this movement of people, the historian Richard Hofstetter called it a phenomenon of moral indignation directed inward. In many ways, the progressives who led this movement were chastened elites largely people who had benefited from systems that were unequal and began to question their role in creating the crises that their nation was facing. And they began to do things differently. Now I want to just pause and say, when we talk about the word progressive in this context, it's important to understand that we are talking about capital P progressivism in a historical sense. The term progressive today is what I might call um, lowercase p progressivism. And that describes the leftmost end of the political spectrum. That is not what the movement that drove the upswing was. It was capital P progressivism, which historians have described as a movement that was so diverse as to be barely coherent. It was a bipartisan movement. It included people of different races, different genders, different socioeconomic classes, all united by a galvanizing belief. Did they lay out a grand blueprint for how we were going to change everything from the, from the top down? The answer is no. If any of you are familiar with the progressive era history, oftentimes what's get, what gets highlighted is all of these big national programs, the trust busting and the creation of the national income tax and child labor legislation, the Consumer Protection Agency, all of these things came out of the progressive era. But actually, those were on the tail end of this movement. On the beginning, it was everyday citizens like you and me working at the grassroots level, at the very local level, tinkering in what the progressive Louis Brandeis called the laboratories of democracy, trying to find solutions to the problems that were happening on their doorstep. Some of the greatest innovations of this era came from citizens, from mayors, from municipalities, from governors, who found solutions that then bubbled up, that went viral laterally, and then became models for national programs that changed the face of America. This was a grassroots movement first. So if we are looking to have another upswing in America today, we need to look to a moral reframing of our problems. 
And we need to be looking to the local for the solutions that are going to get us where we need to go. Another thing about this period was that the charismatic leadership lagged. What does that mean? Teddy Roosevelt is famous, most famous progressive president, right? He was actually on the tail end of this movement. He sort of saw a parade and got out in front of it. And that was a really important piece of this story. But, um, but there was no you know, grand uh, leader on the front end saying, this is what progressivism is going to look like. It really was a citizen-led movement. It was also a movement that was, living, that was driven largely by young people. The progressive reformers of the time, the Jane Addamses who started Hull House and the Settlement Movement, the Paul Harrises who started the Rotary Club, they were under the age of 30 when they began doing their most important work to get America moving in the right direction again. We have to look to our young people for the innovative solutions that are going to get us where we need to go. The last thing that I want to highlight here is that the progressives really believed in the power of association. That's a little bit of an antiquated term. That's the term they would have used to describe it. Today we might use the term community or relationship building or connection, but they believed in the power of bringing people together, both as an end and a means. This was a very lonely, dislocated, isolated time when millions of Americans had moved out of towns, small towns and off of farms and into big, bustling, anonymous cities where they didn't know how to connect with other people. So Paul Harris, famously, who started the Rotary Club, got three other business professionals together just because he wanted somebody to have lunch with because he didn't know anybody in Chicago. And out of that grew a realization of the power of bringing people together to make change. And over time, the Rotary Club became a service-oriented organization and is now one of the largest service organizations in the world. Hundreds of organizations got their start during this era. It was, it was in a, a time of a, a huge civic boom in American history. The progressives really prioritized bringing people together, particularly across lines of difference, in order to reweave a social fabric that had come unraveled. So these are some of the positive lessons from this era. The progressives did a lot of amazing things to set us on a trajectory, a 70-year trajectory of reclaiming Americans' promise. But in their story, there are also many cautionary tales. I don't have time to go through all of them. If you're interested in hearing more about that, again, I. I encourage you to get the book, but the main message that I want to leave about what not to do, what we learned from this period, is that the circle of moral concern that the progressives were working with simply did not extend to people of color, and to a certain extent not to women as well. The we that we were building toward during that first two-thirds of American history was simply not inclusive enough. In many ways, the needs of people of color and other groups were kicked down the road, were sacrificed on the altar of progress. Any we that we would hope to rebuild today, any upswing that we would hope to set in motion, has to take full inclusion as its absolute core and not an afterthought that we can deal with later. I just want to leave you with this parting thought as we think about what might move us forward as a nation. There's a lot to learn from history, not just the historical record, not just the intellectual history, the history of ideas or the history of social movements, but the data is quite clear that, as Teddy Roosevelt, who became one of the most articulate um, champions of the progressive cause, said, the fundamental rule of our national life, the rule which underlies all others, is that on the whole and in the long run, we shall go up or down together. The data shows clearly that this is true. It's not just a lovely sentiment. Over the course of 125 years of American history, when we pulled together, we went up together. 
we're all better off when we're all better off. The lesson from America's last upswing is we have been in a mess just as ugly and difficult as the one we're in today. But we turned it around. We righted the ship. And we can do it again. I am hopeful that we can do it again. But we have to start now. And we have to start in places that we might not be thinking about quite as clearly. Places of the heart. Places of connection. Rebuilding our social fabric around a morality that can inspire us to do more together. That's the message that I wanted to share with you today. I'm so grateful to have been invited here. Um, and I'll, I'll turn the time back over to Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Shaylin. Uh, I think you've created a huge problem, which is where to start with the questions. Let's talk about the role of the, of the news media. I, uh, when I was at Puppy, used to be a journalist. I was a daily newspaper journalist and a business journalist. This is back in the halcyon days of the 1990s. At that time, we were all taught this gospel of objectivity and fairness were prized. We let the facts speak for themselves, and informing citizens was, um, was the great calling of a journalist. Those days are dead, at least at the national level. We now live in an era where, where the profit model of journalism is based on division and rancor and fear and getting clicks. Um, what do we do in this context? Fantastic question, um, and way to start us off with a gnarly one. <laughs> One thing that I would say is it's important to recognize that the media is not immune to these cultural phenomena that we are describing. We are living in one of the most hyper-individualistic moments in American history. Everything is about what's in it for me and what I can gain. And the media, those who run the media, are not exempt from this. Sometimes we treat the media as though they're supposed to be above the fray. The rest of us can be stuck in our competitive culture, um, but you guys are supposed to be somehow different. They're stuck in the same cycle that the entire nation is, this, this deeply eye-focused moment. So that's one thing to recognize. It's not a solution, but it's just a point that, that I think needs to be made. And it is true that objectivity has been sacrificed in favor of profit. But that's not entirely surprising given this culturally, sort of socially Darwinist moment that we're, that we're seeing today. I would say that, that, again, going back to those lessons of the progressive era, we need to refocus on the local. One of the best ways to um, reestablish trust in the media is actually to revive local media. One of the phenomena that has happened in the period that you've described is the decline of local newspapers and local news outlets. Everything has become hyper-centralized, so that we're getting all of our news about what's happening on the national level. And it's really hard to fact check that as everyday citizens, right? And so we need to turn our attention back to what's happening right around us. And we need to invest resources in reviving independent journalism at the local level, not just at the national level. So that's one thing. And at the risk of being overly simplistic, I'll just add this, that I really believe that the best way to overcome disinformation is relationship. Yes, we need regulation. Yes, we need companies to regulate themselves. We need all sorts of bigger um, interventions here. But if you want to know what's going on in America, talk to your neighbor. Don't let the news media tell you what your neighbor is thinking. That's a very simple solution to a really gnarly and big problem that I think sometimes we often forget. But going again back to that example of the progressives, getting back into a relationship with one another is a surprisingly powerful solution to a lot of these problems. It's interesting how very often 
what we, the America that we see on TV doesn't match our personal relationships. And we know that intuitively, and yet yeah. somehow we get lost in it. Bringing it back to what's right in front of us is really, is really going to be a powerful thing here. What about the influence of money um, in politics? I mean, when we think about coming together for the common good, how do we come together around those policies um, at, at the national level when so much of Washington seems to be determined by who has the most money to spend? Yeah, that's another great question. I wish I had all the answers. <laughs> but I will just say um, one hopeful sign is that we're actually seeing a revival of the antitrust movement modeled explicitly on the antitrust movement of the progressive era. It's time to regulate monopolistic businesses because part of what happens is when monopolies exist, the power of corporations is so large that nobody can keep them out of politics. There's no way to, to have influence over them to keep them out of politics. Certainly there are other ways we can legislate and change campaign finance and other things, but I think one movement that actually has bipartisan support, a surprising amount of bipartisan support, is the antitrust movement in Washington right now. I think that's a great place to start in terms of creating some more accountability for corporations and breaking down some of this behemoth power that was a problem in the same era that we're talking about. Um, they managed to fix it then. The legislation that was passed in the progressive era was systematically, systematically dismantled. We need to get it back in place to protect not only consumers, but protect our public square from the influence of corporations, absolutely. Sure. Uh, let's talk about that inequality picture. The top three wealthiest counties in the United States are all suburbs of Washington, D.C. If you go around down to the next top 10 or 20, you're going to see a lot around San Francisco, around New York mm -hmm. City. And then within our um, states and metro areas, you'll have a few zip codes where you have heavy concentrations of wealth. Now, both Bob Putnam and others have documented uh, this vast coming apart of America economically. Um, you were talking about the social Darwinism. <clears throat> it made me think of this kind of academic meritocracy that we have now where, you know, these people that are living in these zip codes also happen to be the people that are the most highly educated. Yeah. How do we bridge these gaps? Yeah. Boy, there's a lot that I could say there, and I'm, I'm going to have to choose carefully because I know we don't have a lot of time. But let me say this. Um, if you were to think about what the number one driver, one of the, one of the very top drivers of economic growth in the entire 20th century is, just think for a second to yourself, what, what would you say the answer to that is? Okay. Hold that in your mind for a minute. And what I'm going to say might surprise you. One of the greatest drivers of both economic growth and actually economic equalization was the high school movement. In the Gilded Age, uh, back at the beginning of the 20th century, the public high school did not exist in the world anywhere. A free public secondary education, just by virtue of the fact that you live in a town, you get to go to school for free for four years, did not exist. There were, there were high schools, but they were largely private, or you had to be particularly gifted or talented to get in. Um, and that was a huge problem when the Industrial Revolution came around because all of a sudden we had an economy that required more educated workers. So you might think, oh, okay, well, Washington invented, or Harvard or wherever, invented the public high school in order to solve that problem. On the contrary, it was actually groups of local citizens in small towns in Midwestern America that banded together to pass local tax initiatives to provide a free public education to everyone in that county. So that required the rich to pay a lot of taxes to pay for the education of kids beyond just their own. 
But that was something that it was easier to create the political will for that at the local level. And so a couple of towns succeeded in doing this, creating a public high school that it went viral, such that within about two decades, almost every community in America had a free public high school. And when you ask an economist what one of the main drivers of both economic growth and economic equalization in the 20th century was, it was the high school movement. So when we're talking about um, big problems of economic sorting or you know, all sorts of things, I guess my answer to that question is, what can we do locally? It's easy to look to Washington and criticize it and say, oh, Washington is so economically segregated. But what, what about right in our communities? And what can we do to form we solutions in our communities to combat economic inequality? People, everyday ordinary citizens did that in this era of American history, and they changed the face of American history for 100 years. They changed the face of the American economy. So that's just one example of how a grassroots solution might actually be more powerful than we think. And it reminds me of something we talk about a lot at the Utah Foundation is how much state and local government actually has an impact on our lives yeah. versus how much bandwidth the American yes. citizenry puts into the federal government. Yeah. Doesn't seem to, to line up properly. And actually, when you study the trends over time, that is a phenomenon that has correlated with this downturn in the last half century that Americans have become more focused on um, national politics and less focused on local politics. Um, so that's, again, something that we need to rethink. We have a question from the audience about going back to that pinnacle or that, that high point in 1960, mm -hmm. besides like Leave it to Beaver being on TV. What, what was going on? What were, what were the things that were happening at that time that you think were kind of the key things that, that made that moment possible? Well, I think it's hard to understate the value of cooperation across party lines, right? I mean, I think we forget, uh, you know, we often look back at the New Deal, for example, and think that it was this thing that was only popular on one side of the political spectrum. That is not true. It was a largely bipartisan achievement. And I think that we forget the value of bipartisanship and how much that influences everything. Because you can have all this grassroots innovation and, and, and sort of innovations bubbling up from below, but if leaders at the national level are not willing to cooperate, then we have a serious problem in terms of getting the weight of the federal government behind what's working. And so that is a huge, difficult problem that I don't have sort of a glib solution for. But, um, but polarization is really, really, really a problem. And I don't know if we have some folks here today from Braver Angels, but there is um, a grassroots, the largest grassroots movement to bring reds and blues into conversation with one another to try and bridge this political divide, not up here, but down here on the level of the human. If, if you are interested in doing this, not just complaining about how the politicians won't do it, but doing it yourself, doing that work yourself to bridge that divide, I would recommend that you look into Braver Angels or many of the um, dialogue or conversation-based movements that are happening all in, across America. Because again, we've, we've failed to be in relationship with one another. And as a result, we are otherizing, demonizing, and we're never going to be able to work together if we think that we're operating in two different moral spheres. The only way to bridge that divide is to get back into conversation. We have to start doing it. We have to start doing it today, not just America's politicians. And looking at those places where we do get together, we have a question from the audience. Uh, are the age of participants in organizations like Rotary 
yeah. what replaces them or what re-energizes those types of organizations to yeah. keep them relevant. Well, it's interesting because when you think of the analog back to the progressive era, um, there definitely were, and it's really interesting, fascinating to dig into the history of this period because there was a whole generation of people who were saying, lamenting the death of the quilting bees, you know, and the, and the barn raisings and the religious um, Bible study groups that held local communities together. But that just wasn't going to work in the cities, which is why young people came along in that era and invented new ways of bringing people together. And that is exactly what we need to do. We operate in a completely changed concept, context. I'm only 41 years old, but I am not a digital native. I'm not. I mean, that's how recent these technologies have, have become. We need our young people who were born into this new world to create new ways of bringing people together. Largely, that's going to look like models that are hybridized between online and offline connections. For many years, I think we had this cyber optimism that, that Facebook was going to save us all and it was going to reverse the social capital deficit and online ties were going to replace all the lost offline ties. That has not happened. And the data is really, really mixed about how online ties are affecting us personally. We know that there's a lot of toxicity in, in a, on a societal level from online connections and social media. We need young people to look to the lessons of the past, look at the organizations like Rotary, don't try to recreate them or revive them. Look at what they did well. They were chapter-based organizations where everybody knew each other. Everybody had a role to play. They were funded by the members themselves, not by outside funders. Can we take some of those lessons from, those, from the way that those um, healthy civic organizations were structured and bring them into a digital world? We need tech entrepreneurs and we need young people, civic entrepreneurs, to get into the weeds on this and, and develop new models for associations in this country. So we have one about immigration, much more on people's minds probably right now than, say, a year ago. Um, during the Gilded Age, immigration was, was significant in, in the decades leading up to that, I suppose, as well, right? Um, you mentioned Jane Addams and Hull House earlier. Mm -hmm. What does all this mean today, given that we have a new influx of immigrants coming in, or, and are there things that we need to be doing? The Utah Foundation, we talk about, is there a toolkit that we should be providing yeah. for immigrants as they come in so that we don't have two societies? To answer that last point about what do we need to do for new immigrants coming in, for, for sure it's true that we have a lot of nativism and suspicion of immigrants today. That was also true of this other you know, first Gilded Age period. And it was organizations like Jane Addams Whole House who were very specifically working across lines of difference, particularly with immigrant groups. And so I think anything that we can do that brings ordinary citizens into relationship with immigrants, that is going to break down that suspicion and that is going to create bonds of mutual affection that need to be created for people to feel welcomed, and for also for people not to feel threatened. So it's not just about resources. Sometimes we think we just need to provide resources to immigrants. We also need to actually actively welcome them by extending relationship to them. And that's something, again, that can happen not just at an institutional level, but can happen at the level of the neighborhood. And that's a little bit tricky, again, because we're living in highly segregated neighborhoods. But Jane Addams didn't grow up on, you know, on the south side of Chicago. She went to that part of uh, Chicago to 
deliberately to understand immigrants and to understand the shifts that were happening in America and, and engaged in mutual learning. And so I think, again, that, that relationship is always mutual. We need to not just be in a service provision mode, treating immigrants like clients or, or people that need services, but we need to get into mutual learning mode and relational mode in order to create a welcoming environment for these people that isn't characterized by suspicion. We have a question about something called COVID-19. The question is, can the pandemic influence our cause back to we moving forward? It absolutely can, but I think there's a really important nuanced lesson here that we can't forget. A lot of times people look at the history of the 20th century, not just people, some of the best historians look at the history of the 20th century and they say, what brought us together was the common crisis, right? The common crisis of the Great Depression and the World Wars, etc. And that was really what brought us together. That story can't actually be true if the data is also true. Because we started moving in the direction, all of those curves started trending in the right direction. We started coming together as a nation before any of those crises, crises came on the scene. So that begs the question, is it actually a crisis that causes us to turn back toward one another or not? The answer, I think, is that it can be. I think one of the most fascinating lessons um, from the progressive era is that there was no massive crisis that caused people to turn toward one another. They just chose it. And I think sometimes we forget, we sort of feel like um, we are drifting on the waves of history, like somehow we are determined by the events that happened to us. And this, this crisis is, the crisis itself will turn us toward one another. I think that is, a, that is a logical fallacy. I think it's also not supported by the data that we see in the 20th century. What turned us toward one another was the choice to turn toward one another. Was the recognition that the only way we're going to get what we want, the outcomes that we want, is if we work together. That is exquisitely true when it comes to COVID-19. There could not be a better object lesson of that fact than what we are living through today, but it is a matter of choice. We have to exercise our individual agency to exercise mastery over the moment. There was a very famous book written in 1914 by a famous progressive named Walter Lippmann called Drift and Mastery. And the main idea of that book is that we have a choice as democratic citizens. We can either drift along with the waves of history being acted upon, or we can master the moment. We can reclaim our agency and right the ship and to a large extent, that's exactly what the progressives were doing. They did not all agree about how to do it. There were lots of fights about what should come first and which thing was more important and how we should execute this, but they were in it trying to turn it around. So I guess my answer to the question is, we shouldn't wait upon the moment to change us. We need to change the moment. Another gap manifests in this red state, blue state divide, yeah. which just through sorting seems to be coming um, a stronger divide. Are we going back to the 1850s before your data? Uh, what happens next with all of that? So it is true that we have never been more politically polarized at any other time in American history than the Civil War. Let me say that one more time so that we can all let it sink in. We have never been more politically polarized than we are today, with the exception of the moment when it came to bloodshed in this country. So if that's not a crisis or a wake-up call, I don't know what is. 
And again, we all have choices about where we live, about how we interact with other people, about the feelings that we have toward members of a different political party. Those are choices. And we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that change begins with our choices. In the early 1800s, uh, when looking at the political structure of his state, Thomas Jefferson concluded that only when citizens are equally secure in their rights can they identify with their fellow citizen and work productively for the benefit of the next generation. Yeah. Is that enough? And how can we make that happen? Well, let me answer that question by saying this. Um, it is not our argument in the upswing to say that the solution to hyper-individualism is hyper-communitarianism. What we are actually saying is that we need to reestablish a balance between the twin ideals in America of individual liberty and mutual association for a common goal, right? What has happened and what those graphs have illustrated is that we've gotten way out of whack, that we're emphasizing the individual way more than we ever have in our history, and we've forgotten that mutual aid and mutual cooperation was on, and in equality is also part of the twin ideals and twin values of this nation. So it's not like we need to say, oh, we just all need to kumbaya, come together, and forget our individual liberties. No, but we do need to recognize that we have never been in a moment where we have been so out of balance. So how do we achieve balance again? In order to achieve balance in a really imbalanced moment, we're going to have to put a lot of resources toward coming back together, right? But that doesn't mean that we forget our individual liberties along the way, because it's actually true, right? We can't work together if we don't have our individual freedoms. And I just want to reference um, the, the patron saint of American communitarianism, Alexis de Tocqueville, who traveled to the United States in 1830. He was a French aristocrat who came here to observe the American experiment, which was very new at the time. And he wanted to see what was going on in America and what, what this democracy was all about. And he famously documented the, this extraordinary extent to which Americans were working together toward common purposes, right? Because in Europe, the thought was the watchword for America is liberty. But then he gets here and he sees all these people working together and engaging in mutual aid, and he's going, what's going on here? Now, on the other hand, Alexis Tocqueville, we often forget, is also the thinker who coined the term individualism to describe what he also saw in America. And Tocqueville grappled with this. How was it that Americans were engaging in this very unique balance between individualism and communitarianism? And he came upon a phrase that he thought described this well, what he was seeing, self-interest rightly understood. But Americans were not about sacrificing self-interest or forgetting it. They had fiercely fought for their liberty, right? But they also understood that um, what one of my colleagues, Eric Liu, likes to say is, we all do better when we all do better. That what's actually in the interest of the whole is in my personal interest, and that is self-interest rightly understood. And I think that that's a lesson that we could stand to learn today, particularly when it comes to fighting the pandemic, that we need to, again, regain that balance between individual liberty and the common good. What would you advise for an individual company or organization what should they be doing differently to, to help bring about this upswing? I think one of the most fascinating findings of all of this data is the culture piece. And you've got to think about, well, how does culture shift? 
if we wanted to shift the levers and move in a direction of less narcissism and more solidarity, like how does that even happen? Um, and, and there's a lot of debate in the scholarship about how to create cultural shifts. Um, but one thing that we know is institutions matter. And one of the things that I believe is happening today is that our institutions have abandoned their um, mission of moral formation, if that makes sense, right? Think about that for a minute. And if you're interested in, the, in looking at this question more, I would, I would point you to the work of um, Yuval Levin, who is a, uh, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in DC who writes eloquently about this. But I think that institutions, we're in a moment where institutions are almost afraid to advocate for things. They're just, they're treated as sort of like empty vessels, right? Like, like we don't get in the fray, whether that's a company or whatever. But I do think that um, institutions have a really important role to play in cultural formation, advocating for more um, we-oriented work environments, advocating for um, giving employees time to volunteer, to vote. There's lots of really interesting specific ways that you could do that, but also I think thinking about your company culture. Are you creating a culture of competition, of winner take all every man for themselves, or are you creating a culture of cooperation where people are gaining the ability to work together and exercising those muscles of working in tandem? Speaking of moral formation and institutions, um, what could you say about family formation and religious affiliation during the 125 years covered in the book? I know that's kind of two questions, but give it a shot. Yeah, so religious affiliation and family formation map that same trajectory, fascinatingly. We don't really think about this. We think of, we, we look back on the sort of the halcyon days in America's past where all families were together. Um, but it actually is true that, that during the Gilded Age, um, people were far less likely to form, to, to get married at all. They also delayed family formation, much like we see today. Again, that period in American history was breathtakingly similar. A lot of that was because men were migrating into the cities to try and get ahead economically. Again, there were different priorities at the time that then people began to question. And so as we began to move in that more communitarian direction, part of that movement was a return to family formation and a return to religious affiliation of all stripes, right? Not just one religion over the other, because the data shows quite clearly that it's less about what you believe and more about whether you show up at the church dinner that determines the power of churches to be a positive force for civic engagement. So it's actually more about behavior within churches than it is about belief. So this is not about us saying, oh, we all need to you know, get more religious because so we can save our souls. We need to get more religious because it brings us into relationship with each other. And if we're careful about how we structure our religious communities, it can bring us into relationship with people who are not like us. Those two trends track the same trajectory, and they ought to be top priorities today for bringing us back to a we, for sure. Thank you, Shaylin. This has been Utah Thrives, the Utah Foundation podcast. Follow our work at utahfoundation.org. And that's Peter Reichard, president of the Utah Foundation and host of the Utah Thrives podcast for the Utah Foundation. And my thanks to them for sharing the bulk of a recent podcast 
that featured Shailen Romney Garrett, co-author with Robert Putnam of The Upswing, How America Came Together a Century Ago, and How We Can Do It Again. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the podcast if you'd like to hear it in total, including an introduction from Senator Mike Lee, as well as a link to their latest report in their new Social Capital series. This one, The Kindness of Strangers, Social Trust in Utah. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for tuning in. Democracy Now! is next.